Hello. Hey. Hi. Okay. Well, hey, everyone. Um, you're listening to Peace of Peace. My name is Alexa, and I'm here with Haley. Um, and if you didn't already know, Peace of Peace is a interview series that provides a safe space for others to share their self-love and acceptance journeys. And this series is elaborating it's blowing up. It's making um, National Eating Disorder Awareness Week into a month. So this is this episode of that series. And I'm super excited that you are here with me, Haley, today to do this. Hey, I'm really excited for the opportunity. Thank you. You're very welcome. And um, before we get started, I just want to do a quick release. Um, do you understand that this recording may travel throughout the world and that um, anything you say or reference that I am the owner of the content? Yep. Awesome. All right. Well, girlfriend, you can introduce yourself to the peeps. Hey, hey my name is Haley Wabel. Um, honestly, not entirely sure what else to say, but I will say that I struggled with an eating disorder for a while, and I guess I will talk a little bit more about that later on. Great. Well, thanks for giving them the what's up <laughs> on you, and they're going to get even more about what's up. Yeah. Um, so we'll just jump right into the questions. So the first one is, um, what was the eating disorder, and when did it start? Okay. So I was never formally diagnosed because I did not actually seek any sort of treatment until after many of the behaviors had kind of subsided. However, looking back, um, I did fit the diagnostic criteria for bulimia nervosa. And I would say that I believe the behaviors started to kick in around the age of 12 or 13. I, um, people... I always, I said this before, but I don't think the common Joe Schmo understands that these thoughts and behaviors start so young. Right, right. It's, it's kind of overwhelming to think about, honestly, because, you know, I, I might have been 12 or 13 when the behaviors really kicked in, but looking back, those thoughts that accompanied them were present long before I ever started actually acting on them. Um, like mm. I remember looking around in my ballet class at the age of like six or so and being mm-hmm. keenly aware that I was the biggest one there and worrying myself sick over going to sleepovers, birthday parties, all those normal social events for somebody that age because I knew that it would involve eating and eating around others felt like this really intensely shameful thing. Right. And I can actually you said ballet class yeah when you were younger when um you had those thoughts I remember like comparing myself at an early stage too um and just always thinking like I'm the biggest one here and I knew like when I that thought of being the biggest one was negative like that was a shameful thought yeah and especially I think when it comes to something like dance or any sort of sport or physical activity that is kind of focused on physique, you know, those thoughts can be intensified so much more. Right. And then when you're at dance class, there's these huge mirrors. Yeah. So it makes it so much easier to not only see yourself, but to see everyone else in the room too. 
Um, which obviously like in dance classes, mirrors are necessary because if you're doing a group dance, you got to make sure everyone's in the right spot. Like I get it. But for people who struggle with the eating disorder, this is like the worst thing is a huge mirror that provides that opportunity of comparison. Right. Like I get what you're saying. In a sense, you almost have to compare yourself because there's a very fluid motion to it all. But at the same time, comparison is kind of the source of a lot of suffering here. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, absolutely. Comparison. What's that saying? Comparison is the thief of joy. And it's so true. Um, cause we can't enjoy ourselves if we're comparing, um, also, I always forget this, but before we, I'm supposed to um, ask you questions, I'm supposed to do a trigger warning. So, sorry, people, this trigger warning is late, but it still happened. So, um, Better- we are talking about something pretty serious, but um, so if you do feel triggered, take a break from the podcast, or if you feel triggered, Haley, um, we could take a break. Um, I just want everyone to feel comfortable. So, sorry that was delayed. <laughs> Hey, at least I got it out there. Yeah, it happened eventually. <laughs> uh, um, do you? Um, okay, so with the eating disorder, do you think it affected your definition of beauty? Yeah, um, and this is kind of like a, a multifaceted question, I think, because even at such an early age, I was very critical of myself, but then over time, like, going to doctor's appointments, I would be told that I was overweight and needed to make these changes. And somehow in my young, underdeveloped mind, I started to interpret this as I was not good enough. And it's because of my weight. It's because of the way I look. So naturally, at that point in time, I I really subscribed to the idea that beauty was about being pleasing to the eye. And that was that. I basically believed that there were a lot of really beautiful people in the world, but that I was not one of them. So my thoughts and beliefs about beauty were really narrow and essentially mm-hmm. confined me to this tiny little box that felt as- impossible to escape from. But thankfully, as I progressed through the years and learned to kind of manage my symptoms, my thoughts, my idea of beauty became a lot more complex and I guess abstract in a sense. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll try to explain what I mean. I'm not sure if it's going to make a lot of sense, but basically these days, I, I really think that I tend to notice and even measure beauty in moments and in interactions with the world around me. And a person's physical attributes have virtually nothing to do with that. So mm-hmm. I guess to take that a little bit further, I can reflect on moments of genuine connection and Those moments really just radiate beauty, whether it's meeting somebody for the first time and exchanging, you know, easy conversation or helping somebody out. It can be as simple as holding a door for somebody. Mm -hmm. And I just I really think it has a lot to do with authenticity. A lot of times it feels kind of beyond words and really is such a subjective thing that I can't really describe it all the time. Okay, so two things I want to touch on. The first thing, doctor's office. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, I feel like, cause you get weighed usually every time you go to the doctors, you get mm-hmm. weighed and that's a triggering situation. And then we go over the BMI chart, which is also ridiculous. Yeah. 
like that needs to go away. Um, and then when they talk to you about their weight, your weight or their whatever, it's like never an empowering moment. And I, um, like with my daughter, Mm -hmm. I was like in the future, like we won't be discussing her weight here. So that might sound crazy to people, but I know like with my history, um, that's not something that's going to happen. And if there is an issue with the weight, you can pull me out in the hallway and meet like the doctor and I can discuss it and then we'll come back in and, and I can make the decision on how to approach that with her. But that's because I'm like hypersensitive, yeah. right? Like I know like how those conversations felt for me, but those conversations are normal, right? Like every time you go to the doctor, um, any doctor, gynecologist, any doctor, you are being weighed and it's just a normal part of the routine. But um, I don't know how you feel about that. That's something I'm definitely going to disrupt with my daughter because I'm not um, I'm not okay with how those discussions happen at the doctor's office. I, I think you definitely raise a good point there because even now I'm in my mid-20s and any sort of mention of something like that can be really difficult depending on the day I'm having but then looking back when I was 12 like getting a physical for cheerleading or something like that and the doctor looked at my mom and and me actually and said oh she's overweight she needs to do something about this well I was 12 years old what what was I supposed to do I had no idea how to make those changes that they were suggesting was necessary and you know kids are pretty egocentric. It's easy to take feedback like that and immediately turn it into something about you being a bad person or something Mm -hmm. wrong with you. Right. And it's like, what an opportunity to break stigma there to say like, honey, you're beautiful. Um, This is what health looks like. This is one way we measure health. Um, all your other like your vitals and all those things are great but let's let's just work on this and it could be a family thing like just reframing that whole conversation could be so much better I feel um also uh, the second thing I wanted to mention is how you said moments are beautiful Mm. I'm just gonna like clap that for a second because that was like one of the best definitions I ever heard of beauty because, like, the genuine connection, yeah. the moments you share with people, the authentic moments, I am overwhelmed with that definition because it's so true. Well, I'm glad that it worked out because I was really kind of digging around there trying to find a good way to describe it. But it's tough. It is. Yeah, it is tough. But I think you described it perfectly because that I'm thinking about it, those are the most like when I've had a great connection with people and it was a really authentic and genuine, it leaves you feeling like uh, there's no other word to describe it, but beautiful. So I love that you said that was the definition of it now. And I'm so happy that your definition changed to that because now I'm going to use that (laughs) part of my definition. (laughs) You know, I, I will say that I think a lot of the shift happened or at least it partially happened as a result of me kind of learning to identify my values and really doing the work to align my personal life with those exact values. So things like kindness, curiosity, genuine connection, authenticity, stuff like that. So I guess it's really no surprise that those beautiful moments that I can recall are all reflective of the things that I hold dear. 
And I love that you said that you did the work to make your personal life match your values because there can be huge disconnects for people mm-hmm. and some it, it doesn't happen overnight to make those connections. So you go woman <laughs> making the, making that happen. That's awesome. It's been a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so fulfilling. Um, what would you say the hardest part about um, your disorder was? So I kind of would like to break this into two pieces because I look at it as what was hardest to manage while I was actively struggling and then found hardest Mm -hmm. to deal with kind of after the fact because I think it's both important. Mm -hmm. But as far as what I found most difficult while I was actively struggling with the disorder was just the sheer loneliness of it all. Mm-hmm. As a lot of people know, eating disorders tend to thrive in secrecy, and over the years, I got really good at hiding it. For nearly 10 years, I believe, I kept this a secret from everybody in my life. So that was 10 years of obsessing over food, exercising until I felt lightheaded to punish myself for eating too much, sneaking to the bathroom after meals to purge telling my family that I didn't need to eat dinner that day because I ate after soccer practice, even though that was a huge lie and I hadn't actually eaten at all that day. Um, At that point in time, I could never really seem to get over the obsession with making myself feel smaller. Like if I could have curled up the ball Mm -hmm. in the corner and faded away, I probably would have. And that's all to say that, you know, this was a really big burden to bear and I took it on alone. Um, I remember it feeling a lot like I was running through a huge airport with this giant suitcase and I was really with it, Mm -hmm. but I just had to pretend that, you know, it wasn't there at all. It's pretty tough. I um, am so happy that you gave that example because I, I struggle with telling people how hard it was and most people travel, most people have been to an airport. So that is a perfect example of how to get people to understand like how difficult that is. And even to how you said, like, if I could go into a corner and just disappear, like that is the mindset. Like that's how extreme it gets. Right. Like there's, there's somewhat of a frantic nature about it. I think like, hence the airport example, you know, you're running and trying to find Mm -hmm. the gate wherever you're supposed to be. And there's always a rush, but at the same time, I feel as though things go really slowly. And I think that's where the comes in, where it feels like you kind of want to curl up into a ball or fold into yourself. It's, I don't know, mm-hmm. it's almost like hitting the pause button on your life. Yeah. And you know what? That makes me, this question isn't something I normally <laughs> ask, but um, you said that it was, act, you were actively struggling for mm-hmm. 10 years. Do you find yourself it's hard to remember some things during those years because your mind was so fixated on the food or um, hiding the disorder. Do do you find that is something that happened for you? I I think so in a lot of ways. Um, I I don't necessarily mean to compare it to amnesia by any means, because I know that's a legitimate struggle for people, but there, there are pieces that I feel as though I'm kind of missing in a sense, like, I just mm-hmm. thinking about, I, I can't remember the exact details, but I remember so many birthday parties where I, I couldn't focus on enjoying my friends or, you know, running around and playing on swing sets or whatever, because I knew that we were about to eat. And, 
you know, that completely consumed my thoughts rather than, you know, focusing on the present moment and actually enjoying my life. Right. And you're totally right because it's like, it's not really memory loss. It's just like the memory we should have had of being with the friends and the family is replaced with the memory of food. So they say like Swiss cheese, like if when something happens, like your brain turns into Swiss cheese and there's like all these big, like missing pieces, but really I guess our pieces are the food. Like it's, it's, it's different. Like we were at a birthday party and instead of enjoying the fun, we are memories. Yeah. Like instead of looking through rose colored glasses, you're looking through this like really foggy mirror or something. And all you can see is the shame and the guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said you wanted to touch on what the most difficult part was after too. Yeah. What was that? And I say this because it's something that I still find myself struggling at times, despite being in recovery for several years at this point, but mm-hmm. just learning to kind of reconnect and to trust myself and my body again has been such a huge focus because I I don't know if this is necessarily the case for everybody, but I know that for me, keeping an eating disorder alive for as long as I did involved a lot of disconnection, a lot of ignoring my body, my needs, my cues, all of those sorts of things. So learning to finally pay attention to the things that I had been muting for a decade was really, and I had Mm -hmm. no idea that was coming. Well, First off, congratulations on recovery for several years. Thank That's you. awesome. That's really, really awesome. And reconnecting. It's like, so what is this body really feel like? So what, like, what is going on here? Um, what, yeah, no, I can relate to that. That statement that you just made yeah. completely. It's one of those hidden steps, I think. Like, it's... I think, thankfully, there's a lot more knowledge out there regarding eating disorders. It's becoming less taboo to talk about. But some of these lingering after effect kind of things aren't about. So I think it's important to kind of put that out there. Right, because I do think, um, well, for me, at least, like recovery is lifelong. And that recovery has changed so much um, throughout my life. Um, so like how you said, like the thoughts during, like what was the hardest during and after, um, that really speaks to what it's like to deal with this. Um, yeah, I think it, it speaks now on head, like head on the now, but it is either (laughs) (laughs) something like that, something about a now and it works. (laughs) (laughs) um so I usually wanted to ask my like was to say has your eating disorder taught you anything but I also want to know like has recovery taught you anything so you could answer like what your eating disorder taught you and what recovery taught you or like however you Mm -hmm. want to interpret that um go for it so I I know we had just kind of talked about like my personal experience as being kind of a before and after sort of thing, but I think in a lot of ways, it it all blends together. So for that reason, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the lessons I've learned have kind of been attached to the entire experience as a whole, both 
actively struggling and in recovery, but I guess it really boils down to two main things. So the first of all, first of all, I say that <laughs> really my weight is the least interesting thing about me. Um, I, I know that that's something that people have brought up a lot, but when I really kind of look back or step back and look at myself more objectively, yeah, I see like the number on the scale is, is one piece of who I am, but then I recognize that I'm smart, I'm compassionate, I, I like to do cartwheels, I make really good aid. These are all things that make me who I am. And my weight is such a tiny fraction of that. Yes, I love it. Yeah. You're, I love that. Yes, I love that. So lesson one, I'm already in love. I'm already, I'm already in love. So again, I, I know that one's kind of, it, it's something that I've seen around before social media. So I think that's kind of why I picked up on it, but it really got me thinking. Um, but the other one, I think is best summarized by a quote by Lori DeShane. And this is another popular one, but it's basically that you can't hate yourself into a version of yourself that you love. I tried the whole self-loathing thing for over a decade. If you can bully or shame yourself into someone who practices self-compassion, I would have done that a long time ago. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's the truth. Wow. Yep. And it took me a really long time to admit that to finally learn to change the way I viewed myself, I really needed to let go of the things that I really thought had helped me stay in control, which is kind of ironic because when I was actively struggling, everything about it made me feel like I was constantly out of control. So there was a lot of hatred there, I think, geared towards myself. And when I learned to sort of relinquish that control. And then in response to that, relinquish some of that self-loathing, I actually started to see these little bits of self-compassion popping out and it was a pretty cool experience. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And that quote is amazing. And you're so right. Like if, um, especially with eating disorders, cause it's a whole, because people always like ask me questions now, like I'm the, like I know, like I'm an expert on this stuff. I only know my experience. Um, but they'll say like, well, what's the difference between like eating disorders and just like negative body image. And, um, so for eating disorders, it's way, how can I say this in like Joe Schmo terms? It's way more than just not liking the way you look. It's way deeper than that. A lot of, a lot more things come along with right. it. The shame, the guilt. Um, the patterns, the rituals, like it's, it goes way deeper than just negative body image. But the quote that you said, um, you can't hate yourself into a version that you love. That could even apply to people who aren't struggling with an eating disorder. That's just struggling with negative body image. So I really like that because um, I think everyone can relate to that right. quote. I mean, you know, they always say that we are our own worst critics and even without a diagnosed mental illness, you know, that's still something that everybody has struggled with at some time or another. So always a fantastic reminder. Yes, I totally agree. Um, so tell me a little bit more about your self-love journey and like, do you practice self like care self? Like, how do you practice self-love? Like, what does that look like? Now. I could probably talk about this one all day, so I'm, I'm going to try to keep it as concise as possible. But 
girl, you could talk about it for as long as you want. This is your story. I think it's really important. So I will, uh, I'll do my best to kind of get the thoughts out there and then maybe, maybe elaborate, but (laughs) I guess (laughs) I do absolutely practice Mm -hmm. self-care. Um, you know, over the years, I've learned the hard way several times that without adequate self-care, I basically crash and burn. And considering that I now work as a mental health therapist, practicing self-care is basically what allows me to carry out my role there. So I try to do that unapologetically. I practice self-care. I prioritize my needs when I can because my job quite literally depends on that. Even though I've gotten Mm -hmm. better at it, though, it's still not something that always comes naturally either. It can be really easy for me to, I guess, betray my needs at times. Um, But I'm still working on it. It's something that I try to do every day. Some days are better than others. Kind of looking at the Mm self-love piece, though, I think that's the tough one. Um, Maybe not for everybody, but for me personally. Self-care, of course, is tough, but I almost view it as something that can become sort of automated in a sense. Like, you can go through the motions, say, yeah, I'm going to make and keep appointments. I'm going to brush my teeth every day, follow my skincare routine, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But you can get away without really thinking about what you're doing. However, self-love, in my experience, requires a lot more action, I guess. And I I think that's partly Mm -hmm. because my understanding of it is that it's multifaceted. You know, it encompasses self-care, of course, that's a huge piece of it, but I also think it includes self-acceptance. So trying to accept and understand parts of myself rather than constantly trying to fix those things. Yes. And I love that you said like self-love is multifaceted because I even like when I talk about this podcast and I say the purpose of it, I will say your self-love, self-acceptance, self-journey. Like I'll say like all these words and I'm like, that makes so much like you summarized why I struggle verbalizing that because it's yeah. multifaceted. There's a, a lot of parts to it. Um, so thank you for making that my thoughts make sense like that that's really nice so thank you even though you didn't mean to do that it's a lot to keep up with (laughs) just to think about but I think it takes even more effort to actually practice those things it was it oh mm -hmm, I agree um because you have to actively do it and be aware and be present in it to get the most out of it also, I want to applaud you for your job because um, I feel like professions like yours deserve a million dollars. <laughs> and hopefully one day we live to see that because the work you're doing, um, is it means so much to the world and to the people that you're helping and the people that you're listening to and society as a whole. Like, people in that field do not get enough. So... Well- I'm applauding you. Like, if I had a million dollars to give, I'd give it to you. I'd give it to people. Yeah, because it's absolutely needed. And um, well, you need thank for you that. for that. Um, you know, we often say that nobody gets into the mental health profession for the money. And, you know, at times it's like, mm-hmm. eh, it could be, be nice to maybe get a little more. But 
really beyond that, I think a lot of my experience connects to what I was saying about genuine connection and authenticity. I love that my job basically means that I get to have those genuine moments several times on a daily basis. I really couldn't ask for anything better. Yeah. It's like a different type of risk. Yeah, it fills your right. heart instead of your wallet. <laughs> <laughs> Which right. both are important. Because I think people, um, if they think about yeah. one, they forget about the yeah. other. But yeah. Um, okay, so can you tell me about a time you felt beautiful? Yeah. Um, so... It's kind of funny that I am choosing this moment to talk about, considering I was sweaty and in pain and my hair was a mess, but I truly did feel beautiful as I crossed the finish line after completing my first marathon. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) in that moment, of course, I, I didn't have my hair or makeup done, and I certainly didn't have the perfect outfit on, but my body proved to me that it could do some really cool things, and That was an accomplishment that my eating disorder and self-loathing and those sorts of things that contributed to it could not take away from me. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that because it takes away so much. And I'm so happy you lived that moment up because your body did a badass thing. It ran a marathon. Like that is... I was definitely questioning my sanity most of the time, but it was a really cool thing to uh, (laughs) kind of check off the list there. Oh, that is so cool. That is so cool. Um, If you could talk to your eating disorder, what would you say? So I, I think this one's kind of an unconventional response, maybe not so sure, but I would probably thank it for the function it served at that point in time, and then I would acknowledge that it's no longer serving me before sending it off. Um, In some ways, I think I've kind of already done that, and don't get me wrong, there was a lot of needless suffering, and I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But I do recognize Mm -hmm. now that I really was trying my best to help myself through some really tough times. Mm -hmm. And... I can relate to that, like how you just spoke about that, because it's like, oddly enough, this horrible thing in our life that, it, I mean, it, it's really heavy, like it's a very heavy thing to deal with, it's very hard to struggle, um, I've never described it as a positive thing, but what I've learned from it, my thoughts, my perspective, a lot of it changed for the better because of it. So um, I also like how you acknowledge like you were doing the best right. you could at that right. time. That's a big piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's like we can't beat our- – that's really all we're doing, right? We can't beat ourselves up for that. Like we're always just trying our best. Um and I love that you acknowledge that I, too. I know that back then and even still up until pretty recently, honestly, I used to get really angry at myself for basically allowing myself to miss out on so many years when this was going on. But 
over time, I kind of started to realize that just like the uh, eating disorder itself, that anger about what I had experienced also wasn't serving me really further complicated the already complicated process of healing from those years. So I really just had to try my best to let it all go. Letting go will seriously let you free. Like I, like each second I live, the more I live that Mm -hmm. out like just letting go um because like you said like the anger and like with the eating disorder um you do experience a lot of anger you're angry at yourself you're angry at the world you're just it's just like a lot of like you're angry at society for having these like images and it's just like it goes on and on in the anger you feel and it's very emotional but you said it like it's it's also kind of like a part of the like disorder kind of it's like you it's like only how can I say this the anger is also tying you to it the anger is still weighing you down from being your total free self um and I think anger does that a lot in situations like anger is very it's like a protective thing I don't know anger is a lot but it not a really how do I say that it's um for sure it takes a it's lot like holding out of up you. a very heavy shield <laughs> yeah and it's usually like anger like if you would like I'm imagining like if we're in a tub the anger is like the plug to let the water go down and as soon as you pull that shield that that plug that anger out all these other emotions start coming and it could, it leads to really acknowledging right. what's like and under it's not there. always pretty. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, okay. So this okay. is your mic drop moment. <laughs> what, um, from everything we talked about, or maybe there's something that we didn't get to touch on. If the peeps out there, if you wanted them to remember one thing or remember one thing about your story, what would it be? So picking one thing is going to be kind of tough, but I I think. (laughs) Pick multiple if you need to. Go ahead. Yeah, I I think the main thing, and it's not even really something that I, I mentioned yet, but especially for those who might be struggling with this currently, just like with any mental illness, recovery from an eating disorder is not going to be linear. It's, it's not going to be this pretty little process wrapped up in a bow. It's, it's not going to be a steady uphill climb. It's kind of a roller coaster, and it's never really as simple as just managing the most harmful of the behaviors involved and you know, going on to live a happy, carefree life. Just like the thoughts are often there long before the behaviors, they often have a tendency to linger afterwards. And sometimes those behaviors will seemingly resurface out of the blue. And I think that can be really discouraging for a lot of people. Um, You know, in, in my own experience, there reached a point where I didn't meet the criteria anymore. Um, Like I, I still had a really unhealthy relationship with food and exercise. And there were all of these arbitrary rules that I was following, like 
no eating after seven o'clock. Um, if I don't exercise, I have to skip dessert. Mm -hmm. I have to eat the same amount as the people around me. And if I didn't follow these rules to a T, I felt those same feelings of shame and guilt that had always been there. But because I was no longer mm -hmm. forcing myself to throw up, I had just assumed that, oh, this is recovery, I guess. But spoiler alert, I was only halfway there. Um, <laughs> so all that to say that, mm -hmm. you know, it can be really intimidating because there is a lot that goes into addressing some of those underlying issues. And you know, it wasn't until I personally took those steps to work through those things that I actually started to make peace with myself and with food and exercise. So I, I guess one thing is that some days can still be really tough. So it's not easy. It's not glamorous, but it is worth it. And I guess that can all boil down to me saying that if anyone listening is considering asking for help, this is a good sign to just do it. Um, we all need support through the tough mm -hmm. times. I, you know, I, like I had mentioned, I had kind of kept it a secret from everybody in my life for a decade. And then slowly I started to tell like a friend. And when she didn't freak out, I thought that, you know, this means that I can probably safely tell some other people. So I did um, tell my friends, my sister, significant other, lots of people in my life that I felt safe with. And eventually, once I started grad school and was training to become a therapist myself, I finally decided to actually talk to a therapist about some of the thoughts that I had. So I always say better late than never. But at the same time, if, <laughs> if this is something that you can do now, and it is something that you're struggling with, just go for it because I wish I would have done it sooner. I love it. And I love, I love that you touched on like a few times. It's there's the thoughts and the behaviors. They're two separate things, but they're a part of the eating disorder. Um, and the thoughts, like you're so right. Like sometimes it just comes out of the blue yeah. and it hits you like a wave, like the thoughts. It's, it's overwhelming. Like it just knocks you right. off your feet sometimes. You're like, where did that come from? Um, and it's like, no matter how much time has passed, like sometimes that still happens. And like, as you're talking, like something, I guess this is like the eating disorder, like mm -hmm. that pattern, that comfort that it, like just what it was before. Like if I'm in a bad mood, and, like, it's like a domino effect. Like, if one thing went wrong and another thing went on and another thing happened, like, the end of the day, I hate my body or I hate myself. I'm like, wait a second. This all started because I slept in. Like, it's just, like, the right. way you respond to things sometimes. Um, it, it's, like, that's your comfort. So, like, when I start to get so upset, it just really goes back to how I feel about my body. And it comes out in the way of me hating it, um, which is – it's just, like, a – I don't know, it's like a comfort thing. It's like you're used to doing that. And like, I can't really <laughs> verbalize that connection. But if you yeah, can for relate sure. to that. Um, I, I know that the tiniest little things sometimes can seem to just set off this domino effect of self-deprecating thoughts. And sometimes I really have to catch myself and be like, what the heck are you doing right now? <laughs> like, there's no reason for this, but it is familiar yeah. and familiarity is comfortable in a sense. Yeah. And you know what? 
as soon as you started talking, I thought, like, because it or, because it c- kind of boils down to, like, you just show yourself so much hate that when all these things start to happen, it just mm-hmm. makes you feel like you're not worth it anymore. And like you said, like, if you are thinking about recovery, you're thinking about asking for help, you're worth it. We're worth it. Um, we have to check ourselves because we're worth it. So when we go down this domino f- thoughts and like it just comes in waves or whatever, we have to, like you said, right. check yourself. Like, like grab oh, a where's it coming from? Like, what am I doing? You have to do that. Yeah. Um, right. Like you have to. And I'm so happy that you took this like last question, last moment to say like if you're struggling with this right now because – God only knows who's listening and this could be someone's sign. And that's, that's another beautiful thing. Um, like that's beautiful. If someone hears that and this is their sign to step towards help and recovery. I like guess my only thing. hope is to try to kind of slowly dismantle all of the shame that goes into it. You know, I, like I said, I think I'm, I'm glad to hear at least that, Things are slowly starting to pick up traction. You know, people are becoming more educated on the matters. But at the same time, I don't think that that's always enough to combat the internalized shame that goes into perpetuating these things. So always good to uh, kind of bring attention to that, I think. Yes, let's fight the shame together. I'm here for it. Me and you, let's fight it. I'm here for it. (sighs) Well... Haley, thanks so much for sharing your story and answering all these questions. And I know people are going to be able to relate to this story because as you're talking, I'm relating to it. So I'm so happy that you took the time to be an interviewee on the podcast. Thanks again for the opportunity. This was a good time. Yay. Thanks so much. And um, peeps out there listening, I hope you enjoyed it because I totally did. And um, if you want to share your story, please contact me. Um, You can do it on Facebook with the group Peace with Peace. So peace as in like a slice of pizza um, with peace, like peace, love, and happiness. And thanks for listening.